episode 362, a CFO talks about a hybrid business model. Today, I speak with Ali Uchar. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Let's talk about provider organizations and telehealth. It's just too common a refrain amongst provider organizations who say some combination of our patients and or clinicians don't like telehealth or telehealth is too expensive for us to do unless, I don't know, maybe we should charge facility fees for telehealth visits and or telehealth is risky to invest in because as soon as payers start paying less than 65% of in-person visits, we're going to drop it anyway. These things are said despite the overwhelming popularity of telehealth in almost any large-scale survey that you'll find. It seems like largely the only entities reporting that patients and clinicians don't like telehealth are provider organizations who haven't adequately invested in telehealth at the systematic slash strategic level. Therefore, the only thing their anecdotal evidence about telehealth really seems to show is the negative impact of phoning it in, which is no one wanting to phone in. Pun unintentional, but you have to admit, kind of great. All of this is going on with an interesting backdrop. As reported by Chartist Group and shared by Olivia Webb in her Substack the other day, link in the show notes, health systems see telehealth as a major competitor. 82% of health systems surveyed reported that telehealth companies like Teladoc or Amwell are competitors. This is second only to the percentage of surveyed health systems that named other health systems as competitors. John Singer wrote on Twitter the other day, any leader who thinks their business is immune to the wild dynamism of our time is unlikely to last long. So apropos, love it. I said this on a podcast last December, link in the show notes, and you can go back and check the tape if you want to. And I'm even more convinced of it right now. Telehealth is inexorable and it's already showing its disruptive potential. But let me point out something here. Who is leaning in hard to telehealth? I'm going to make a broad stroke statement here, so take it for what it's worth. But let me hypothesize that who is leaning in hard to telehealth and virtual healthcare are telehealth and virtual healthcare companies. Many of them are adding in-person care because billing codes, but their DNA is digital. So most of the so-called, in air quotes, hybrid companies out there are digital companies with in-person clinics that they've added, not yield in-person clinic that added a digital service line. So I say all this to say, I wanted to talk to a traditional sort of provider organization. I wanted to talk to an in-person provider organization who is conceiving of telehealth not as a threat, but as a new opportunity to provide ancillary services. One who is going hybrid, but from the other direction, traditional in-person to digital instead of digital to in-person. Further, I wanted to talk to the CFO of one of these places. I thought the CFO would be the one to get the real scoop from because it's all about the business model, baby. Let me underline the business model point with a quote from a Substack entitled, I wasted $40,000 on a fantastic startup idea. And here's the quote. It had been a working assumption of mine that if you could improve the health of patients, then, you know, someone would pay for that. Yeah, no, they won't. Unless business model. My guest today, Ali Uchar, is the CFO of Care Solutions Group. They provide mobile physician services to seniors, 
As they expanded their mobile physician service, they also looked at additional ancillary opportunities. Those ancillary opportunities all involve telehealth. Right now, Ali Uchar's company is running two telehealth programs. One of them is basically teleurgent care. The second one is using telehealth for care transitions, including some care coordination. They transition patients back to the home care setting as safely as possible. Let me say that again in business model speak. Discharged patients don't wind up in the ER and or readmitted within 30 days. So let's hear about telehealth from the vantage point of a CFO. How do organizations who realize that telehealth is essential for future viability, how do they make it financially viable today? Ali Uchar listed out a stepwise approach to creating a sustainable business model that takes advantage of telehealth. Here's the first thing. Figure out what you're trying to do on behalf of patients, please. For example, what opportunities are you trying to give your team or customers to improve patient care or equity in care? That's where it really should start. The next step then is figuring out how you're going to get paid sustainably. There are two pieces to that. First piece, maybe you can get paid directly if at all possible. The most common way to do this, which is also the one I like the least because it echoes with the ghosts of paying for volume, is the whole get yourself a code and bill FFS for your activities. Another way to get paid directly, maybe there's a value-based or risk-based contract that you can get where you're taking care of a patient population at a certain stage in their care journey. Good luck with that. And I say this as a finger wag to plan sponsors, employers, carriers, who only in a slim majority of cases offer a way for providers to get paid for the value they create. Please do better. Okay, moving along in our ways to get paid list, besides trying to figure out how to get paid directly vis-a-vis FFS or in some kind of risk-based way, another thing that you can do is to ascertain how another stakeholder in the care continuum is going to directly benefit from what you're doing, make them your customer, and then build them <laughs> You could figure out the quality programs that they're a part of and how much revenue is at stake, then take a piece of that. And then number two way that you can get paid by billing somebody else who is billing somebody else, maybe you can charge them to do something because they could get direct reimbursement for what you're doing, and then you take a piece of that. There's a second part to the business model here besides the revenue generation part. And oddly, despite its apparent, I don't know, seeming straightforwardness, it's so often relegated to the world of the afterthought. After constructing the revenue side of the business model, you got to get operational and figure out how you're going to switch up your workflows and your processes and your roles and responsibilities, your strategy, your infrastructure, ascertain how you're doing business has to change to accommodate the new service offerings. Listen to the shows with Liliana Petrova and Christian Millister, links in the show notes, for many examples of healthcare businesses kind of weirdly disregarding this last part here. If I had to pick one predominant reason why, first of all, telehealth at some provider organizations is getting a bad rap, but also why doctors are suffering under the weight of their administrative burden and other clinicians as well, of course. It's this right here. If leadership in an organization doesn't stop and pick apart their operational model when their revenue model changes, you get a suboptimal and misaligned operational model. I feel like there's three shelves of books on this topic in most public libraries, so I won't belabor it here. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group.
Ali Uchar, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me, Stacey. I'm excited to have this discussion. As am I, my friend. So for the two telehealth programs that you're currently running, the tele-urgent care and the tele-transition to the home care setting, how are you getting paid? What are the financials that sit behind both of those? We look at telehealth strategically. It's a piece of our puzzle. We have different components to our practice. One obviously is conducting the face-to-face encounters. That represents, let's say about 80% of our total business. The other components are, for example, the telehealth, which we estimate could be anywhere from eight to 10% of our business. And then we have two additional components where we're managing the transitions back home, which is a, a relatively percentage-wise, it's a smaller volume. It could be anywhere from 2 to 3% of our total business. And then the chronic care management, these patients, because of their chronic diseases, we connect with them on a monthly basis. So when I look at telehealth, I take telehealth and I couple it with transitional care. I couple it with chronic care. And when you piece all that together, you can really have a dramatic impact on the care of that patient. I'll tell you who would love what you just said there. Christian Molaster and Liliana Petrova, who were previous guests on this podcast. Both of them, Liliana is a customer experience expert. Christian Molaster is a telehealth operational expert. And both of them said, if you're going to really benefit from that which is telehealth, you have to consider it strategically. That the definition of telehealth is not like, hey, let's do a video visit. Jay Parkinson said on Twitter the other day, the definition of telehealth is online project management with your own trusted team. I see that. As you go deeper into it, you're coupling that telehealth with transitional care, chronic care. You can also address issues. I heard one of your recent podcasts with Dr. Ian Tong. You can address health equity issues in rural areas or urban areas, which may be difficult to reach or maybe difficult to address those needs in that setting. And you can address some of those needs via telehealth. We've seen that also prove out. So if you're talking strategically here, I feel like it all starts with a work group and the clinical team sits down. Maybe the admin team gets invited, but there's some kind of work group at the beginning Mm -hmm. that figures out strategically what the deal is going to be. So you as a CFO, you're going to these strategic meetings, it sounds like. Oh, I am, I'm in all of the strategic meetings. I'm very involved in that. Which is fascinating. What goes on there? What do you guys do? Like, how do you, what is the framework or the mechanism or the whiteboard process by which the strategy transpires? The strategic team includes, we don't per se have a label as a strategic team, but we work collectively as a group to address these needs of, of the patients wherever they may be. It'll involve myself, It'll involve our clinicians who are involved directly in the care of that patient. It will involve the registered nurse chronic care manager who is more in contact with that patient on a long-term basis, and it will involve our administrative staff. We may also bring in from time to time one of our key marketing people who will better understand where those needs are being addressed so that he or she can take that in their communication with their customer accounts in the field. It's an all-in-one team. And is your role in those meetings to try to make sure that you're going to get paid? I think one of the main reasons why a lot of these telehealth initiatives fail is that nobody can figure out how to make the program sustainable. And it sounds like you have overcome that hurdle. 
That may be because we may be in a little bit of a different position than who you may have spoken to in the past. Most of our population is traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage. And Medicare Advantage usually, in most cases that I've seen, will mimic what the traditional Medicare program is doing from a telehealth standpoint. So when I talk to family members or when we talk to family members or the patient themselves, we do have a very comfortable feeling that most likely the insurance company is going to be reimbursing for those services. Are you talking about simply like currently there's parity, right? So like a telehealth visit is reimbursed at the same level as a in-person visit at this time. So, you know, for the tele-urgent care portion of the business, at least, or if you're checking in periodically, you know, in the transition of care one, you can get reimbursed for, in air quotes, visits. Yes, it does obviously help that it's at parity now. If they, and I've heard discussion moving forward in the future with certain respective state legislatures that could be 65 to 75% in the future, but it's not going to stop us from providing telehealth because it's the right thing to do for the patient. Obviously, you want to recoup that cost, and I think we would still be competitive even at 75% of today's reimbursement. So you've done the financial modeling, and even if you get reimbursed at some lower percentage, it still makes financial sense for you to continue. It would still make financial sense for us to continue anywhere in the range from 65 to 75% of current reimbursement rates. It's a, when you look at telehealth, I look at telehealth, some people may look at it as a standalone type of program. I look at it more from an incremental perspective. What is it going to add to our business model? And it's truly, when I look at it incrementally, I've got the encounter with the patient and I've got the cost of the clinician. So really, I don't need any floor space. I may incur some cost with the telehealth platform, but outside of that cost with the telehealth platform, there isn't really any other cost that I'm incurring. It's a very simplistic analysis when I look at it from an incremental standpoint, coupled with fitting that into our strategic model. It's really addressing the need of the patient. And then there's all kinds of benefits on the back end when I think about the benefits to the overall healthcare system. For example, when you're working with specific clients, like if you're working with a hospital, you're going to assist them in managing those 30-day readmissions. You will prevent somebody from going back to the hospital within that 30-day time frame. Or if you're doing that in a, with a rehab community, a chain of skilled nursing facilities, you're also managing them in the community, and they're also not going to get penalized for their 30-day readmissions. The payers are also going to like the fact that we're reducing hospitalizations. You've got all these additional benefits, and then you've got benefits that are accruing to the physician as it relates to improved performance. And those physicians where you're providing these services for, let's say transitional care management, and you're preventing a readmission, they're going to qualify possibly for higher bonuses down the road because their performance is better due to lower readmissions, lower hospitalizations, lower emergency room visits. Sean Rhodes was on the show several weeks ago talking about the benefits of creating a clinically integrated network. 
And what you're saying here is sort of mirroring some of the points that he was making. And one of them in particular really stood out. The idea that if you do some of the things that you're talking about right now for each of these various stakeholders, it helps in contract negotiations in the future. If a hospital can reduce 30-day readmits or a SNF does the same or a physician has better quality scores, all of them, when they walk into the contract negotiation with whoever they're dealing with, whoever is paying them, they can point to those metrics and say, yeah, and you should pay me more FFS. Totally agree. I'll give you an example, a great example that we've been working with a collaboration with a chain of skilled nursing facilities in southeastern Michigan. There's four skilled nursing facilities within this chain. They have contracted with us to manage those discharges coming out of their rehab settings back to home. And it reduces their readmissions either back to the skilled nursing facility or back to the hospital. They then have more leverage to take that data and bring it to the hospital and say, we'd like to take on more of your patients for rehab if there is such a need. So what you're doing is you're helping your customer to increase market share, I'm hearing. You are. There's no doubt about it. If you manage it the right way. So if we're thinking about what the benefits that that accrue to your customers, which then make your model financially sustainable, I think sometimes people overlook when they're trying to figure out what their business model is, that your business model has to support your customer's business model. Otherwise, this isn't going to work. Like you become a cost as opposed to an investment (laughs) per se. If you're doing something which enables your customers to have a stronger business, like that's the only way to roll. You're right. I could become a cost to them if I don't manage it correctly. Like I could become a cost to them if on a Saturday someone needs an emergent visit and I don't address that need at 2 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. They may end up going somewhere which is going to penalize that skilled nursing facility. So your whole business model depends on you making sure that your customers' reimbursement is as high as possible, the penalties are as low as possible or are non-existent. And if there's any bumpers or kickers or whatever quality shared savings programs or whatever it is that they're participating in, that those are, are optimized and maximized. So you've got to develop your program to support those initiatives that your customers are engaged in. And think also along the lines, for example, in the value-based structure, we are a part of an ACO. Many of the physicians within the ACO either do not offer a telehealth service or do not have 24-7 access. So what those clinicians will work with us because we can deliver both of those, when one of their respective patients within their primary care practice has a need for an emergent visit a Saturday or a Sunday or whenever it may be, we step in, we communicate what we found out to the primary care physician, and we transition that person back to the primary care physician. Again, that impacts you know their scores. We've got, you're helping them increase their FFS reimbursement, increase their share, maximize MSSP quality measure incentives. We've got the new REACH program helping out attain those goals and then minimizing penalties like the readmission penalty, et cetera. What are the other ways that the work that you're doing really benefits the customers, clinicians that you're working for? 
one of the areas that we're putting uh, some additional effort in is a chronic care management program through the telehealth platform with the nurse. Now, that's not a reimbursable service from a telehealth perspective, but fits into the chronic care management program because they're managing that patient through a video and an audio connection. And when you say chronic care management program, you're referring to the Medicare, there's some CPT codes that you can use. I think it's like a monthly billing. Yeah, exactly. And there's a handful of CPT codes for that service. It could be, it ranges based on time, the amount of time that the registered nurse care manager is dedicating to the patient on that call. It could be 20 minutes, it could be 40 minutes, it could be 60 minutes, or it could be 90 minutes. So you'll have a mix of different times for each of the patients within your practice. In 2022, Medicare took a look at those CPT codes and adjusted those reimbursement rates to reflect the additional time and the work that is required to make the chronic care management program work. So in some cases, for example, when you look at the chronic care management reimbursement for, let's say, the lowest CPT code, which is a 99490, they increased that reimbursement rate by close to 50% because they saw that the reimbursement rate was just not attractive enough at the lower rate. It was causing people to hesitate entering into the chronic care management space. Now they've made it more attractive. It really does make more sense. The other thing with chronic care management, too, is I've seen many physician practices utilize this service by using lower-cost medical assistance to manage those patients, and I just do not see how that's going to add that much value. If you have a registered nurse care manager who is experienced, they will have the greatest impact on healthcare costs because they know where to go for resources. They know how, how to highlight issues. They know how to make things happen. They know those experienced registered nurse care managers know where the gaps are early enough in the process to close those gaps. So effectively, this chronic care management is supposed to be a value-based program where we're paying for value, not volume. But some people, it sounds like, have figured out how to take a value-based program and shove it into an FFS way of thinking. It's interesting how you're you're framing things. And when at the top of this conversation, you talked about how 80% of your business is your core business, your traditional legacy core business, but then you've got 20% of your business migrating to, let's just say, a more digital setting, care setting. Was that something that you proactively decided to do or that you have a proactive strategy to increase that secondary revenue? Because I, I could see that strategically, that's, that's typically how you go about things. You know, you figure out where you're trying to head and what your metric is, and then you build your business model and your processes to support that end game. First of all, is that how you're doing it? But then second of all, what's unique about your, is it just that you as a CFO, so it just takes a certain kind of CFO or like what's the cause of you guys doing things quite differently, I think, than many healthcare organizations? I can't say that this was a strategy going in. As we started to see the chronic care and the transitional care grow and with the telehealth coming in during the pandemic, we started to put more of a strategic focus on expanding those service lines. I could see where that 20% that I've outlined could grow to 25%, maybe even 30. There's that additional component 
I've been very concerned about because there's so much of the devices out there, and that's the remote patient monitoring. We have not pushed into that space yet, but we do see some value in that in managing our patients and other patients through RPM, which will provide an additional revenue stream. So if I was going to put together a really top line, like what are the steps to take here if you're trying to create a sustainable business model that takes advantage of, of telehealth? The first thing would probably be figure out what you're trying to do on behalf of patients. What opportunities are you trying to give everybody to improve patient care? Like that's kind of where it starts. Then the next step is figure out how you're going to get paid sustainably, right? And there's two pieces to that. Number one, how do you get paid directly, if at all possible? So that's piece one. But then piece two is figure out how your customers are going to benefit from this so that when you have a negotiation with them, you can either get paid more for something that you're doing, which helps them that everybody's aware of. Or secondly, maybe you can charge them to do something because they could get direct reimbursement. And then step three would be figure out how you're going to switch up your workflows, et cetera, like how you're doing business to accommodate all of these services. You mentioned that when we contract with an outside physician organization to deliver that chronic care and transitional care management, we're contracting directly with that physician organization. They're going to capture that reimbursement from their billing activities and they in turn will pay for our service that we provide directly to them. Now, that would be for an outside practice, but that's how we can add value to them. And we're going to bring value to them because we're going to keep their patients out of the hospital, hopefully, or we're going to get them in for a face-to-face encounter with the physician in the office. If we're thinking about how you're switching up the business model, you know, I was talking to David Molstein from Levitt Partners the other day, and he just kind of sums something up in a very interesting way. He said, there's three ways that you can move your business forward, your healthcare business. You can repair it, you can remodel it, or you can rebuild it. If we're thinking about telehealth, again, from a CFO's perspective, how do you evaluate whether it's worth it to, I mean, repairing is obviously the cheapest, remodeling is a little bit more expensive and rebuilding is like a holy heck, you know? How do you think about which way to go? I'm looking at it from a physician practice perspective. You may need to remodel, but you can do it inexpensively if you do it the right way. The key is it's got to have that buy-in from everyone within the organization, especially the senior level executive people. Whether it's a small independent physician practice, maybe it's got to have the buy-in from the doctor. Because many times I've seen practices where the doctor is not bought into telehealth or or won't even offer telehealth. In fact, I think we've had several patients in the last a month or so where their physician does not offer telehealth and makes it very difficult for them to address their needs in the home setting. It's basically refining your practice. That's the way I look at it. It didn't take a lot for us from a dollar standpoint to bring these service lines into the practice. We were able to integrate them into the practice primarily because we had buy-in from everybody. Within the organization, they definitely see the value of telehealth. Transitional care management, they see the value of transitional care management. Chronic care, it took a while for them to see the value of that, but now they see when their patients' needs are being addressed by a registered nurse care manager, it takes a lot of pressure off of the clinician, especially when they know that 
Friday afternoon when they can't schedule an appointment, someone's need is being addressed by someone else within the organization. If we were going to start making a list of what the key success metrics are here, I think this last one, what you just said, should be a key success metric. You know, we're dealing with with a epidemic of burnout in this country. And a lot of it has to do with just the administrative burden or the crappy workflow burden that has been placed upon physicians, nurses, PAs, you know, like you name it in this country. So I would want to add to anybody who's trying to figure out what their key metrics are, you know, like how does this alleviate the burden that's being put on clinicians and nothing for nothing but administrative staff as well. If you're looking at this as a CFO, how are you evaluating this is successful at the business level? How do you evaluate that? I will look at it from the standpoint of lower acute care utilization. So transitions back to the hospital. I could look at it from the standpoint that if I have, for sake of simplicity, I'll say 100 patients, and I'm able to prevent 10% of those patients from going into the hospital, I can look at a range of savings there from a preventable emergency room visit to a preventable hospital admission and quantify that directionally. So I will look at lower acute care utilization as one metric. I would look at that program and say, this is something that we want to move forward with and add on to our service line. We also would look at the preventable readmissions from either a hospital or skilled nursing facility. That's another metric that we look very closely at. So for example, when we launched a program with a a chain of skilled nursing facilities, we had a very high readmission rate at the outset of the program because we were fine-tuning all the processes. Once we got everything in place, that readmission rate dropped from 50% for 30-day readmissions within the first month of the launch of the program down to less than 10% within 18 months. That's a dramatic reduction in readmission rates. And we know that when we look at those kinds of metrics, we know that we're bringing value to the customer, we're bringing value to the patient, and we want to continue to do this program. So what happened as a result of those improvement in readmission rates, the skilled nursing facility decided to add on additional skilled nursing facilities into the program because they saw the value from a patient perspective, from a metrics perspective, and it also relieved their discharge planners and social workers from additional workload that they need to do to coordinate care in the community. And are you collecting patient satisfaction or patient feedback as a metric? Oh, yeah, we do. We do collect. And I I don't know of any patient who has not been satisfied I think the most frustrating thing from a patient standpoint may be if they don't have those needs addressed quickly. What ends up happening is, you know, you've seen these when they when they're discharged from a hospital or skilled nursing facility. Some of these discharge instructions can be anywhere from 20 to 50 pages and they're overwhelmed. So they come home and they don't know what to do. That's where the nurse steps in. What instrument do you use to collect that feedback? Is it you're just sending out a survey or like how do you assess whether your patients are satisfied or not? One of two processes. We'll either do an independent phone survey, whether it be a consultant or a service of that type, or we'll do a mail-in type of survey. And that's not HIPAA prevented? Oh, that's a leading question because there's some organizations that don't collect patient feedback because they say it's, it's a HIPAA problem. You've got a one-on-one relationship where you're sharing information between the patient and the practice. I don't see where, I'm not sure I understand where, how that could be a HIPAA <laughs> violation. 
I was just checking because that's my thought about it too. It sounds like a uh, fantastic excuse not to. I mean, that's an interesting thought that you bring up there. I haven't heard that one before though. You hear all kinds of things when you're sitting in my seat. You don't want to bring like, for example, you don't want to bring someone brand new to a patient's care and start having them cold call and saying, okay, let's talk about this service. The patient needs to know in advance that someone's going to reach out to them to let them know that this is going to happen to address those patient satisfaction concerns or issues that may surface from time to time. Very good point. Ali, where can people go to learn more about the work that you are doing? They can either email me or go to our website. The website is uh, caresolutionsusa.com or they can uh, email me directly at Ali, A-L-I, at caresolutionsusa.com. Ali Utra, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. I love this conversation. Thank you for having me, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.